0: Christianity is a strange religion. It's about a king who comes to die and die the death of criminals. And this king in his earthly life lives a life of non-retaliation, non-violence, non-rebellion, and instead chooses submission, meekness, and if one is frankly looking to take over the world, you don't go to Christianity to validate your motives and your actions. Adolf Hitler realized this, reflecting on German, the Germans uh, inherited Christianity. This is what he says: "It's been our misfortune to have the wrong religion. Why didn't we have the religion of? Others who regard sacrifice for the fatherland as the highest good. The Mohammedan religion, too, would have been much more compatible to us than Christianity. Why did it have to be Christianity with its meekness and flabbiness? Hitler was right in a certain respect. If Christians truly follow their Jesus, then of course they're going to be about what Christ is about. That is, meekness and love and mercy, grace non-rebellion. But of course, Hitler, while he was wrong on so many things, he certainly was wrong on this. He was wrong to associate Christianity and Christian meekness with any idea of flabbiness. Christian meekness, let's be clear, according to the Bible, does not flow out of any weakness. In actuality, it flows out of absolute strength and boldness. The strength and boldness found in Jesus This is the definition of Christian meekness, Christ-like strength under the control of Christ-like love. If you're taking notes, which of course I encourage you to do, here's the main idea, the big idea for today, is just as Christ walked in meekness in the face of suffering, so Christians can do the same in Him. Just as Christ walked in meekness in unjust suffering... So Christians, we Christians here today can do the same in suffering. I invite you to join with me. <clears throat> in fact, the expectation is, isn't it, that you would bring your Bibles. So turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2 and we are in verses 18 to 25. 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 18 to 25. As you flip there, I'll give you a bit of background. Of course, we are continuing the book of 1 Peter, is written by the apostle Peter written to Christians in modern-day Turkey who were suffering for Jesus. And as Peter writes into that situation in the early 60s AD, he is anchoring their hopes and all of their lives in Christ and His salvation for those who have trusted upon Him. And Peter, after Peter nurses their faith in Jesus and who Christ is and all that they have in Jesus, he then turns to address their conduct in the faith. Look there, 2.12, as he begins to address their conduct, you see the Christian mission in the face of suffering, which we looked at last time. He says there, keep your conduct among the Gentiles. There he's not picking on non-Jews. This is talking about everybody who is not uh, a Jew. They are spiritual Gentiles. They're spiritual Gentiles. Uh, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Of course, this church had Jew and Gentile that were brought together in the gospel of Jesus, and he is wanting them to walk before the Gentile world, that is, the spiritual Gentile world, the non-believers, so that people would be saved, even in the face of suffering, as we see. The fuel for godliness, our godliness, their godliness, was the salvation of the lost, In chapter 3, verse 1, if you want to glance over there, he calls certain Christians to win over others by their godliness. We look at that next time. You see how powerful godliness is? That is your godliness, your holiness, your perseverance in the faith. As God works holiness in us by His Holy Spirit so that we might reflect Him more, His intention is that the world would see us, that is all of His people, and see really Him as if you can look at an angled mirror. You don't just see the church as if the mirror was straight. Instead, it's angled, right? We see what is higher than us. And so we reflect God to the world, and the world sees God as it sees the church in action. In 1 Peter, we're helped to navigate. We're helped to navigate living in this sinful world. And what does it look like for me to shine for Jesus Christ, even in difficulty? And in terms of the structure, from 2.13 to 3.7 here, Peter helps us navigate certain situations. First, as we looked at last time, he looks at Christians submitting to government authorities. In today's passage, we see Christian servants under their unjust masters. And then in chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, we look at Christian wives submitting to their non-Christian husbands. And what does it look like for them to navigate fear as their husbands maybe are going away? In all of these situations and more, the Christian here is to shine for for God's glory as we represent Christ the King. In all these situations and more, we are to shine for God's glory. And today we look at the Christian servant The slaves submitting to unjust masters. Before we dive in, it's definitely worth giving some background on slavery in the Roman Empire. 50%, can you imagine that? 50% of the Roman Empire around that time were slaves. Compare that to America in 1860, only 12.5% of America were slaves. Imagine 50%. Slavery, the institution, slavery was baked into the fabric of society, and no, it was certainly a complicated situation, and here today, we living in America, as we read this passage, we should not equate slavery that America was involved in as a one-to-one with slavery in the Roman Empire. Again, slavery in the Roman Empire was definitely complicated. I mean, it's certainly complicated here in America, but Slavery in the Roman Empire had more facets. One became a slave through different means. Your people could be conquered in war, so therefore you become a slave of the kingdom that conquered you. You could also, if you're facing, let's say, economic insecurity, let's say your family lines, you know, this future lineage is insecure, you could sell yourself to another person into an indentured servitude for protection. Or you could be born into a slave family. In terms of what we see in the Roman Empire slavery, there are records of slaves holding high positions in society. They, they were able to pick up trades, they were able to become, as records show, doctors. Some slaves were even ended up being more wealthy than their masters, and some slaves could even purchase their freedom, at least in the larger cities where they could earn more money. But of course, slavery, depending on the master, could still be incredibly brutal. Slaves had no rights in the Roman Empire. And they were at the mercy of their masters, whether good or bad. And before we go any further, let me be clear: slavery was not based in God's created order. Okay, so no one can ever claim that God's intention at the creation at created order was slavery, and, it was, and that was a good thing. It is not present in created order in Genesis one and two. It was not according to God's design. Now, that's hugely different than marriage between a man and a woman, for example. That is hard-baked into creation order. Before sin was there, there is marriage between one man and one woman. Slavery is not like that. Slavery came in after the fall of man, after the sin of man. So, again, no one should ever claim that slavery was good and was part or was God's good plan at creation. And when it comes to the New Testament and slavery. The New Testament authors nowhere condone slavery. Instead, they're seeking to regulate it. They actually address Christian masters and Christian slaves, and they're helping them live righteously towards one another. And they're, of course, addressing their relationship with God. I mean, can you imagine that there is no recourse for wrongdoing If you were a slave, imagine that's the situation. Of course, they're not going to be writing about how to, uh, they're not going to be writing against really confrontation. And there are many countries in the world today where if you are a slave, that's just the situation that you're in. Sadly, sadly, but here in America, by God's grace, we live in a very difficult, uh, different situation. In the New Testament, you don't see any rallying of the troops to overthrow the government. You do not see calls for violent confrontation. Instead, again, you see Christians riding into the, into the situation that they find themselves in. And all are called to focus their eyes on Jesus, to be a good testimony, to walk in righteousness. Righteousness. They talk about how to please God in the most fundamental way, no matter what social condition they find themselves in. A big reason why there are no calls for social revolution or violent confrontation is because Christians are fundamentally citizens of a different kingdom. A kingdom where Christ is king, not temporary Nero. So although Christians, we today, them here, live in the kingdom of man, we live according to the kingdom of God. We are fundamentally of the kingdom of Christ. This is why Christ and His Christians can appear so incredibly strange to the world as we live in the world. This is why the Christian servant or slave was to be strange in the eyes of the world. And this brings us to point number one. Point number one, the Christian's calling. Um, But before we get there, let's go ahead and read the passage. 1 Peter chapter 2 and we are going to pick up actually let's go ahead and start from 13 and then we'll get to 25 it gives us helpful context and then we'll focus in on the sermon from 18 to 25 let's start in 13 be subject for the lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good for this is the will of god that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as, as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Then he transitions here to what we're looking at today. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. who judges justly? He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Point number one, we see the Christians calling, the Christians calling there in verse 18, there in verse 18, as well as 21. Verse 18 says there, servants, be subject to your masters. Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. This certainly was not easy for these Christian servants, we imagine. Verse 19 says that they were suffering unjustly. Verse 20, if you look there, we see that most likely they were being, some were being beaten by unjust masters, even though they were doing good. You can imagine that they are seeking to follow Jesus and obey Christ's commands, but if their masters are calling them to do something sinful, they are resisting. And so they're being beaten for that, seeking to live righteous lives. And their masters were unjust. They were crooked. They were perverse. That's what the word means there. Think moral bankruptcy in terms of their unjust nature. Of course, we would be naive to think that Uh, this kind of injustice does not exist today. In fact, it does here and around the world. In fact, in the last 10 years, there was a notable case in the news. You can go ahead and Google it later on where a woman in Irvine, so happened to be a princess in a royal family in the world, was allegedly or accused of holding four maids against their will. One from Kenya, three from the Philippines. This is in Irvine. And that's on an individual level. Of course, this stuff of injustice... And slavery happens all around the world and also in a government-sponsored way. When we were overseas, we were around this kind of stuff. There, There are documentaries about it. But as we go through this passage and study it for ourselves, we can certainly, we definitely want to think about slaves under unjust masters, that context, but we can expand the context for us today as application. Think about being an employee under an unjust or a mean employer. That's going to help us apply the passage today. Um, Now again, this situation can't be applied one-to-one to today. It doesn't apply exactly to our situation. And thank the Lord. By God's common grace, America, child slavery is illegal. Beating your employees is illegal. And so America, again, by God's common grace, there is recourse for us to pursue. There's avenues for us to pursue if we find ourselves in these situations. So let me just encourage you, if you find yourself in a situation where you are experiencing physical abuse by somebody else, whether in the workplace or in the home, if you are experiencing physical threats and emotional abuse, please come talk to the pastor's. Please come talk to us as pastors and seek help. We are here to help, to counsel, and to intervene even. So let me be clear at the start of this sermon that we want you to do this. This is good. By God's grace, He has given us these avenues that we can pursue if we find ourselves in these situations. But again, think about this situation and even our own. This must have been difficult to hear. Be subject to your masters, even to the unjust Imagine the situation where one, the ones in authority, because they are ungodly and evil and wicked, they wield such authority seeking to crush those under their authority. That is, let's be clear, particularly evil. Any position of authority is to be used for the cultivation and care of man and for the glory of God. But when that authority wields such authority for ungodliness, for the destruction of man and the glorification of Himself, it is particularly evil and wicked. There is a hijacking of God's plan, abusing God's created people, all the while acting. People act as gods unto themselves. And if you have ever been under such sinful wielding of authority, you know how this can be oppressive and suppressive. What would you do as a slave in that master's house to solve the problem? In such conflict, you have flight responses and fight responses, right? We know this. The flight responses, in terms of these, you might cower in fear and desperately seek in the moment to please your boss. You just hope the problem goes away. And how can I do this? I just appease, no matter what they ask. Maybe you try and then escape somehow, run away. Or even more drastic and sad, some people take this flight response to the extreme. They get away from that person permanently. And they tragically end their earthly existence. Christians understand this temptation to flee. It's why Peter encourages Christians to fear not man in 3.6 and 14, but instead to live boldly for Jesus. On the opposite side of the spectrum, you have those who fight. We go on the offensive. And so what does that look like? That looks like gossip. It looks like slander. Maybe even you curse the person to their face or even more drastic, you fight. And instead of removing the solution by removing yourself from the planet, you remove the other person from the planet and murder. Christians understand this temptation to fight. That's why Peter exhorts Christians in two one to put away malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. But no matter how right these responses may seem and feel like in the face of injustice, these solutions, frankly, are solutions for those who lack faith. These are responses that are inherent actually to the kingdom of man. You can think about Israel when they gave in to sin, when they cowered in fear. Israel was God's people. God, Yahweh, Lord over all, had taken them to be His people. But what did they do in the face of the threatening nations as God is leading them to the promised land? The the nations had greater resources, stronger soldiers, more land. They think, forget God. Forget this Yahweh guy and his infinite resources and power, supposedly. We need to make covenants with other nations. Forget God's covenant with us. Never mind that those nations reject Yahweh. Never mind that they worship false gods. All that Yahweh stuff is negotiable but what is non-negotiable is our lineage and our security. So they follow the world. Thinking about those who fought, these are fight responses, those who become rage monsters. Pharaoh in the Exodus, what was his response when he hears that Yahweh has commanded him to let his people go? And then he feared losing his kingdom, right? His kingdom was non-negotiable. He rose up and hatred, and violence, and murder. He feared losing His kingdom, and so He responded with evil and sought to remove Jews from the face of the planet. Christians, we have to know that when we are tempted to flee or to fight, which we all are, we actually have a lot more in common with these unjust masters than we think. Maybe our non-negotiable is something in the kingdom of man and less in the kingdom of Christ. We understand these temptations. And while we might not be enslaved in such a way, we understand difficult situations. And we know the temptation to live by the flesh and not by the Spirit. But thank God, Christ provides us an alternative way. It is the way of the kingdom of Christ The way of Christ Himself. And so our hope, the Christian's hope, is not found in the non, the supposedly non-negotiable stuff of the world. It's not found in the kingdom of man. Our non-negotiable, according to who Christ is and what He has given us, our non-negotiable is found in Christ Himself. The kingdom of heaven. You look at 3.22, and friends, if you are suffering in any sort of way, this is your hope. 3.22, our Lord is Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven he's not dead he is gone into heaven and is at the right hand of god which is a place of sovereign authority and our hearts are tethered to his heart and one day one day our hope and our faith will be realized to the full christ is our hope and our inheritance and as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we have been born again through a heavenly message. And through this heavenly message of salvation, we have, according to 2.3, tasted that the Lord is good. We are freed from the power of sin and enabled to live for the fame of His great name in the worst of circumstances. So when Peter says, be subject to unjust masters, He's calling them not to just do a certain thing, to to, with grit just get through the circumstance. No, He's calling them to do this in light of who Jesus is and all that Christ provides for us, our true hope, and where our eternal inheritance is stored up for us. With all that, with the promises of Jesus and the Spirit of God leading us now, He calls us to submit even in the worst of circumstances. He calls us to submit to Christ and to unjust masters in suffering with full awareness of who God is and His will, what He has done, and what He will do. This brings us to point number two. Point number two, the Christian's motivation. We saw the Christian's um, calling, which is point number one, the Christian's calling. Now we look at the Christian's motivation, which is to simply please our Lord in heaven. Knowing God and His gospel... Knowing God and His goodness in the Gospel, we now have the opportunity to live to please Him. You notice in the last verse there in our section, verse 25, "...for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to..." Here's what I want to highlight here. "...the shepherd and overseer of your souls." We just sang that last song that Darren and Trish led for us, which is incredibly motivating, incredibly moving. He is our overseer, the shepherd of our souls, and we love him. My Jesus, we love Thee, and we have now entrusted ourselves to him. He is our shepherd and the overseer of our souls. In our our passage, God wants to know, friends, if you are suffering here today, whether it be in a difficult employment situation, difficulties at home, difficulties with life in general, living in this sinful world, God will reward you for your endurance. God will reward you for your endurance as He is shepherding you and overseeing you. This is what Peter talks about there in 19 and 20. Unjust suffering is described as a gracious thing. You look there. For this is a gracious thing, or basically a grace. That's what it says in Greek. This is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. And then He just points out the simple fact that if you suffer for something you deserve for doing bad, well, that's no reward. There's going to be no reward, and he uses the word credit there. For what credit is it? What reward is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? He says, there's nothing. That's, that's, uh, you deserve that. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a grace. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. The reason why enduring suffering for the gospel is a grace to you A credit to you, a reward to you, is because God your shepherd notices. And He has every intention to reward you with favor and great blessing at Christ's return. I mean, just think about this. We do this all the time, and it's just a faint echo of what the Father does. God the Father. You ever take notice of your students or your players if you're a coach? Trainers, coaches, parents, teachers. Do you, do you guys take notice? You think of the coach who trains a student to do a certain thing over and over and over again and to do it in a certain way and then to execute. And the coach, you know, you have the player do this repeatedly. You spend hours and hours and hours doing the same thing. And then in the game, finally, they get it done. You see execution. And you guys know that feeling? You think they did it. You might be watching from afar. You take notice and you think, yes, at the right time, celebration comes, reward comes, and praise comes. You celebrate their mindset. You celebrate their discipline. You celebrate their practice, their faithfulness, and their execution. Church, do you realize that that's just a faint little glimmer of what God delights in as he sees his people, his children, execute faithfulness, endurance, endurance, Steadfastness in the face of persecution for the gospel. Christian, are you enduring now? Know that He waits for you at that finish line to reward you. Of course, endurance doesn't equal salvation. We're not saved by any work, not even endurance. But we are, in fact, rewarded, and that's a motivation for us. He stands at the finish line waiting to bring you into the joy of your Master at the end when false and final salvation arrives at the return of Jesus as we looked at in chapter 1, verses 4-9. to This is how we are to suffer. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, mindful of our Father as He watches us and cares for us and notes all of the different sufferings and the injustice that goes against us and our endurance nevertheless, for the sake of the Gospel, so that people might be saved. How awesome is it to be mindful of our God, mindful of our sovereign and loving God, our God who is just and righteous and who rules over all. Does being mindful of your God bring confidence to you in your suffering? Thank God, God is not as powerful as a worm. Because who would care, frankly? But God is God. The Sovereign and loving King and Creator, God over us who has delivered Israel out of Egypt, parted the seas, sent Christ Himself to die on the cross, and God raised Him from the dead, and so He has power over everything. And He upholds the universe with the power of His Word. His hand is strong. And He is faithful to save. He's also obviously God with us in Jesus. He will one day deliver us and carry out judgment against those who oppose Him, as chapter 4 mentions. I wonder if you gain confidence being mindful of your God. You know, if Rocky was with me down a dark alley, I'd have some confidence. Rocky probably bulldozed everybody. And then if I got Mako right there too, you would do some judo moves. I got Rocky... And I got, I got Mako. That's confidence. That's nothing. There's an infinite chasm between those two buff guys and God, our Heavenly Father, who has delivered us from the dead. Delivered Christ from the dead. And us with Him, and who watches everything. Taking notice. And one day, He will return to gather His people to Himself. This is why I want everybody here to sign up for the Behold Our God conference. It'll help us all be mindful of who this God is, conscious of who this God is. Uh, Eric Taunus, Dr. Eric Taunus, who teaches that Bible, he's probably one of the top, I don't know, five, five guys who has taught me about the character of God. And you guys remember what I've said previously in this, this series. As strong as God is, so goes your faith. So we ought better, right? We ought better study who this God is, because the more we study about who this God is, the more confidence we can have in the worst of situations. That's super exciting. So I hope that you guys are all eager to sign up and attend that conference. And uh, Eric is a gifted speaker by the grace of God, and he has used that to steward, um, and he has he has stewarded his abilities to the glory of God as his teaching has affected so many. Just as God made good on raising Jesus from the dead, so He will make good on His promises to exalt all who are in Jesus Christ. When you realize that God is our God, we are actually freed up to please Him, living out our days, even in bad situations that involve suffering. I think this is communicated there in verse 18. It is the fear of God that enables us to endure and to be subject. You look at verse 18. Servants, be subject with all respect. It literally reads, with all fear. But ultimately, what I think is going on there, because Peter never encourages us to fear man in his letter, in fact, he encourages us to not do that. He calls us to not do that. Here, what I think is going on is we are able to uh, submit and subject ourselves to our human masters with all fear towards our heavenly God because we are mindful of Him And He is worthy of all praise and honor and He calls us to a certain something. And it's to that certain something that we can respond, here subject ourselves, while fearing God. If you look there at the verse immediately before, look at 2.17. Who is it that we are to fear? Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And then he just continues on addressing this idea of how we are to be mindful of God. Thank God we can entrust ourselves to him, even as he calls us to walk the path of Christ. This brings us to point number three, the Christian's example. Point number one was the Christian's responsibility. Point number two was the, Christ, or sorry, the Christian's calling. That was point number two. Sorry, point number one was the Christian's calling. Point number two is the Christian's motivation. Point number three is the Christian's example. The Christian's example, which is Jesus. As difficult as enduring suffering is, it's helpful to remember that Christ does not just call us to walk in some general path. He calls us to walk His path after Him. You look at verse 21, "...to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps." Our calling is to follow Christ in His path of suffering, as he is our example. This word he refers to, you know, imagine uh, when we all learn to, to write our alphabet, we are tracing other people's writings. That's, that's literally what example is it's tracing, it's going over what one has already gone over. Christ has given us his example as he walked the path of suffering as He suffered for us on our behalf. So we Christians are called now to suffer for Him. And the only way we're ever going to gain strength, of course, to fulfill this calling is by clinging to Him who has already walked the path. With Christ as our example, there's different implications that come from this. So many of them, we're going to focus on three. The first implication here is with Christ having gone before, we can have confidence. We can have confidence now in all of the difficulty Of life when we face suffering. In all of it, thank God that we can have confidence because we have Christ who leads us. Our family loves going to the beach, or at least uh, most of us. Um, Some people are mountain people, some people are beach people. Uh, Many in our family like the beach. We love the beach. And sometime in the last couple years, you know, we went to explore a beach in Laguna called the 10,000 Step Beach. And the reason why we went there is not just because it is beautiful in general but because if you follow a path along the rocks, through a tunnel, along something of a small cliff, you arrive at this unique, secluded beach. It's amazing, small. Maybe from here to the end of the wall. Surrounded by something of small cliffs on these craggy rocks. And while we were there, we saw dolphins from afar. We even saw baby whales somewhat close to where we were. But to get there was painful. Many of us chose to walk barefoot, walking on these, you know, beach rocks with uh, small little sharp edges and dried up, crustified shells poking into our feet. And when we were on those rocks, what do I tell my children? What do you tell your children or those who are going to come after you? You tell them, walk where I walk, right? Follow my path. To get to the amazing glories at the end is no doubt difficult. But isn't it made so much easier when we walk in the footsteps of another as He, that is Jesus, helps us along the way. He leads the way, in fact. He shows us how to step as He Himself steps. Thank God. Thank God. When we are tempted to follow the world and employ the world's solutions to solve our earthly problems, right? We know how desperate we are, but Christ shows us the way of heaven. Again, he didn't just teach it. He lived it. You look there at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22, 23, 22 and 23. He committed no sin. Of course, this is in the face of unjust suffering. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Straight out of Isaiah 53, verse 9. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. Referring to Isaiah 53, verse 7. This is straight out of the book of Isaiah that that, uh, Rich read for us a little earlier, where God tells us that the suffering servant, our suffering servant, the righteous one, the sinless Messiah would suffer for His people in injustice. And though he suffered, still he lived righteously. He committed no sin, even though he was sinned against, right? Though people tried to set him up, as Rocky's been teaching us through the book of Mark, though people tried to catch him with his own law, he did not deceive. Instead, he continued speaking truth. Though people spoke ill of him, he did not speak ill of them. And when he suffered at the hands of men, punched in the face, whipped, and then pierced with a spear, he did not threaten or terrorize them. He could have responded in kind, but he chose to suffer. And now he calls his people to do the same, to follow in his righteous steps. This is the way of heaven. When we are tempted to go the way of the world, he shows us a different way. Of course, Now, while we are called to walk in His example and follow His footsteps, it doesn't mean that we die on a cross for the sins of others as an atoning sacrifice. Only Jesus is the sinless one, our sacrifice of atonement. He is it. Which is why salvation is in Him alone. But He calls us to follow in His steps and to trust Him. As we persevere to the end where all of the fullness of the glory awaits us, thank God, He sent Christ to step before us. And in Him, we can have confidence because we follow in His footsteps. But not only does Jesus show us where to walk, right? That's one thing. If He just showed us where to walk. He shows us how to walk in love. This is the second implication. As Christ suffered on account of love, so we can suffer the same. As Christ suffered on account of love, so we can suffer for the same. We love out of the love we know, don't we? And that love motivates us to endure suffering. Having experienced the love of Christ, His patient, His long-suffering love, His gracious, merciful, kind, and compassionate love, so then we Christians can love. Do you ever find it hard to love those who make your life difficult? (laughs) You might be thinking right now, yes, yes, I do. (laughs) I certainly have. But you know what helps me love more like Christ? It's marveling at Christ's gracious love for me in light of my sin against Him. Apart from the grace of Christ, I, we, the Bible says, I am a sinner before a holy and all-righteous God where He is worthy of all praise and honor. But when I was not a Christian, I sought the praise and honor that He alone deserves. One author has called us all glory thieves. We thieved after His glory. I lived with zero mind for the King of the universe, living for what I wanted according to my ways, all the while with no honor to God, no thanksgiving to God. I was breathing God's air. I was living the life He gave me. I lived for pleasure as if I was King. I ruled when only God ruled. But what does God do? I mean, we understand how much of an offense this is, at least a little bit. Imagine if we had people living in our house or our children or whoever it was and, and or we ourselves our children were living underneath our parents and we paid zero mind for our parents. We would be in big trouble. But our offense is so much greater because God is so much greater. Our offense to God ends up being infinite because God is infinite. You understand that? Like, if, I, if it were possible that I sinned against this phone, or better yet, you know, I sinned against an ant, well, well what, what in the world does that even mean? Because the ant has no glory like the glory of God. Well, what would it mean for me to sin against a rock? Like, that just doesn't make sense. But if you sin against an all-holy, infinite God, no wonder our sin, therefore, and the judgment of it is infinite because of that great chasm that stands between the sinner and then the all-righteous God. I've sinned against God. And the Bible says that we all have done this. But what does God do? Though I had absolute disregard for God my Creator, there He was, and there He is in our sin ready to love, steady to endure, so patient with all my sin and rejected, rejection of Him, and continually so. Isn't that awesome? It's no surprise though, because He is the all-loving and perfect Father. God Himself knew all of my sins, past, present, and future, and still Christ died for me. We ought to say he knew them, and that's why he died for me, as he bared my burden on the cross. And I'm not afraid to talk about my sin. I know some people say hey, don't you shouldn't talk about your sin. Maybe you're going to invite bad things, or maybe you know oh, you, you shouldn't bring about uh, those bad types of thoughts. Not in the least. In fact, to truly appreciate God's love for me, I ought to have a proper understanding and remorse for my sin, because it is then when I realize just how deep the grace of God really goes. I see more, as I see more of my sin, I see yet more grace, yet more love. And I'm all the more confident because of His love. And in His love, Christ suffers. You see that He suffers for His people. Look there at verse 24. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds, you have been healed, right? Where rebels should have died, that's the, that's the result and the curse of sin, the judgment of sin that we rightly deserved. It's death, death in eternal hell. But what happens here? God sends His eternal Son, Jesus, takes on flesh and dies the death that we deserve. Christ dies willingly. Hebrews says Christ dies joyfully To become our substitute. That's the substitutionary language there. He bore our sins. Isaiah 53 says He was pierced for our transgressions. He was pierced for our iniquities. Friends, this is the Gospel. That though we are unrighteous, God sends the righteous one to die in our stead, bearing the wrath that we rightly deserve so that we would know freedom from sin, forgiveness of God, reconciliation with God, Salvation is also described as adoption into His family where we know God as Father. We know eternal salvation. We know confidence. We know security. We know living for the Gospel's sake. We are declared righteous before the sight of our all-holy God even though we were unrighteous. That is justification. All that in Jesus. All because of God's great love for you, Christian. And so it is when we see God's provision for us in Jesus, as one has said, it is then that we see the measure of God's measureless love. If you're visiting with us and you're exploring Christianity, this is the Gospel. And we can talk freely about sins. We can confess our sin. It's not because we fear some sort of tyrannical retribution. It's because we know that God is our loving God. Think about pardon. Think about forgiveness. How much more would we love the one who pardons as we understand what we need pardon from? That's what every Christian is. We stand here as those who have been forgiven of all of our sins on account of the infinite grace of God and the promise of salvation and forgiveness of sins is held out to anyone and everyone who would turn from their sins and believe on Jesus. And God says, as He is the perfect Creator, you would be forgiven. God intends here, thinking back to application, God intends that we love out of the love we come to know ourselves. Just as we have received so much from His suffering, God calls Christians also to suffer. That by us doing good, even in the face of unjust suffering, others would see a reflection of our Christ who suffered for us. That mirror illustration? That the world would see us as we endure their suffering they would see a little bit of Jesus' love for all sinners. Remember the mission there in 2.12, it is that the world may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What a glorious, though difficult, a glorious calling to suffer for Him as the Bible says, He also suffered for you. It is why so many Christians throughout history have given their lives for Jesus. It is in effort that others, even their very own enemies, would come to know the true love of Jesus Christ. Third implication. The third implication, just as as Christ entrusted Himself to God in suffering, so we can too. Just as Christ entrusted Himself to God in suffering, so we can too. Look there in verse 23. You see how Christ was mindful of God? Verse 23, He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Let me just read from 22 on so we get really the sense of it. He committed no sin, even though he's suffering here. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. How is that for being mindful of God? He's not calling us to entrust himself to him who may or may not be just. Who he, who he himself is sinful. He who has no power. He who is not righteous. He who is not just. He calls us or he himself entrusted himself to God who is judge and who judges justly. God who is righteous and judges in all of his righteousness and his holiness. In all of his unjust suffering, when Christ was delivered over to the authorities, when he was mocked, when he was insulted, when he was finally crucified, in it all as he made his way to the cross, as he was handed over to the authorities and killed, he entrusted himself to God and his perfect justice. He trusted that one day God would vindicate him. And on that last day, he would move to judge and punish those who oppose him. There's so much instruction for us here in suffering. There's so much instruction for you who are suffering. In suffering, we're not called to stoic resignation, nor are we left to pure grit to endure difficulties. But as we endure, Christ calls us to bank on the fact that God will reward His people at the end. And in fact, He will judge the wicked, as it says in Romans chapter 12. And so therefore, we ought not take vengeance into our own hands, but leave it to God. Talk about being mindful of God, the overseer and shepherd of your souls. Given who he is, right, we as his people have no reason to fear, no reason to fight, but in all we every reason, yet to walk in love and faithfulness and in the righteousness of Jesus, even in suffering. You look there in first Peter chapter two, verse twenty four, He Himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. In His death, we die to sin. And in His resurrection, we live to righteousness in Him. We too, even in suffering, can hand our lives, entrust our lives over to Jesus, the Judge who judges justly. Friends, who better to take care of your soul than Christ the Great Shepherd? He who has gone before in suffering and He who has come out on the other end alive, all by His plan. And though, yes, we may go into the ground, we will go into the ground if we are in Christ, we know that our future is linked up with Jesus. And so we too will rise from the grave as we sung earlier. Who better to take care of your souls than Christ the Great Shepherd? Thank God we have a Savior who has in fact gone before gone before in his suffering, but gone before in glory. And so if you are ever in the place of suffering for Christ, which we all will suffer in this sinful world, know and remember that your Savior lives. This is why no matter the circumstance in life in this sinful world, we have in Christ a living hope, as Peter says in chapter 1 verse 3. Though there may be difficulty on the sharp beach rocks of life, so to speak. Thank God we have Christ's footsteps to follow, His meekness and His strength to see us through, and His love to compel us to shine in the world so that some, by His grace, might come to confess Christ for themselves. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we confess that every sin we commit at some point in time has to do fundamentally with unbelief. We confess that oftentimes we go to the world for solutions to spiritual problems as our greatest enemy and our fight is ultimately spiritual. But Lord, we thank You that You, Jesus, show us a different way. Though our hearts were captured in darkness, You, Lord Jesus, turned up. You are the light of life, and You show us a different way that is the way to be forgiven and the way to walk in righteousness so that others would know forgiveness. Father, we pray that You, by Your Spirit, would empower us to walk more faithfully. That You would help us cling to You, Jesus, as You have in fact gone before and help us understand all of the promises that are found in Jesus, the rock-solid promises that are built on You, our Lord and Savior. According to Your great mercy, You have caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection, through Your resurrection from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And help us to remember, God, that you yourself are guarding us for that salvation, ready to be revealed in that day. God, fuel our love and our walk of righteousness with knowledge of you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that your grace abounds over and over and over again. And we pray that you would change our hearts so that we would want others to know this same grace that is found in your death and in your resurrection for all who would repent of their sins and believe. In your name we pray. Amen.